Welcome to the Surrounded by Valor podcast. My name is Mary. The definition of valor is courage in the face of danger. I try to surround myself with people who embody valor because they help me become better and hopefully you too. My intention with this podcast is to share thoughts, stories, and conversations that will inspire, educate, and enlighten all of us. Stories of regular people like you and me who've had extraordinary experiences. As the saying goes, nobody rides for free. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and thanks so much for joining us. Hello and welcome. I want to start off today with a great big thank you. As you know, this is a new podcast and I am proudly self-funded. I'm not doing any big social media pushes or advertising or anything like that, yet still listenership and downloads have exceeded what I anticipated. I can't thank you enough for listening. I don't have a plan for this podcast at all except for to see where it takes us. I've got my first three out-of-family interviews coming up in March, and soon I'm going to be reaching out to some of you for some April spots. I know I keep saying this, but I'm really interested in telling the extraordinary stories of everyday people, just like you and me, because they're all around us, if you really think about it. I'm going to continue to share nurses' voices, talk to cancer survivors, and all of that sort of stuff. But today I'm going to answer a few listener questions, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about two books that I'm currently reading. The first book is The Greatness of Athletes, and the second one is The Comfort Crisis. These were some of the questions that were submitted to Kurt and I that seemed to be mostly for me, so that's why I'm separating these out. First question, will you have your sister on the podcast? I certainly will. My sister lives in France, and she's been there for over 20 years, and uh, she's coming. she comes home in the summers, so we joked that we will have her on, and we will call that episode Amy in Paris, a little takeoff of Emily in Paris, if you've watched that show. Next question. How did you get involved in sport and have you always been an athlete? It's kind of a funny, interesting question. Not a funny question, but my dad raised my sister and I to, I don't know if he intended for us to be athletes. Like we were involved in dance and things like that. We were always involved in something that we were utilizing movement. As she settled into her tennis career and as I settled into my swimming career, he always broke down sport and compared it to life. So for example, you know, he, we would talk about my swim meets and he would say, you know, when you hit a tough moment in your 500 free, that someday is going to help you get through a difficult job interview or a difficult part of your life. And he really taught us that sport becomes a metaphor for life. It's kind of like the playground that we all practice on. So rather than teaching us to be athletes, I would say, is he really honed in on the importance between movement and processing and, you know, exploring. We were encouraged to do whatever sport we wanted, but we definitely had 100%, 100% support. And I also have to say, he wasn't an athlete himself. He was a you know, recreational tennis player and that kind of thing. But uh, people often think that my dad was a triathlete or a runner. A lot ask me if he was, and I'll say, not at all. 
Um, but he was a really good coach and observer and understander of humans. In fact, even until the day he died, we would often talk about like, you know, what I was going to do this season. And I mean, I'm in my late forties and he was 80 and it seems kind of funny that we're still doing that. You know, we were still doing that, but it was, a uh, it was really awesome to have him have that interest and, and not so much as winning, but how you're accomplishing things and the obstacles you face. And he really liked to talk about training protocols. At the same time, he would say every time uh, you ran, you rode a hundred miles today, I don't like to drive my car that far. So, um, so that's kind of how he encouraged us to be athletes. Um, next question kind of relating to that is how is my injury? So I had an interesting injury last year. I had a right lateral calf. I, I, it's not even a strain. It was almost like a cramp that would come on after about 15 minutes of uh, running. After my dad died, I, um, I definitely took to the bike and, you know, I, I used training to help me process that grief. However, I always kept it very easy. I never overdid it. But I think I, in retrospect, I probably could have easily headed that way had it not been for this very obscure injury. I saw several providers and we even thought it was an entrapped artery. I got Doppler studies. I got imaging. Everything was normal. And two separate or three separate providers doctors said, you know, this is probably an injury related to grief, which at the time I was like, you know, makes you feel like you're not doing grief correctly. Or it's kind of like, all right, but I'd rather have something concrete to work with, if you know what I mean. Um, and then one of them said, what do you mean? There's a mind-body connection. <laughs> so after some research, I realized that there is a pretty big incidence of injury and illness after the first during the first year of a deep loss. And, you know, that's always plus or minus of how long it lasts. But your cortisol levels are up. If you um, frequent PubMed, it's, it's a, there's some really interesting studies. So just something to be aware of. It doesn't mean that if you do develop an injury or illness during that first year that you're doing something wrong. It just, I think, required a little extra self-care. Um, but my injury has been great. I haven't had any pain since May. I've actually been running since May. I just haven't competed. I've really methodically and slowly built up my mileage. I'm only at 23 miles a week right now. That's how incrementally I built it up. So things are going well. Thanks for asking. <laughs> um, next question is, what did you do to cope with your grief when your dad died? I did a whole bunch of things. The very first thing I did was enlisted the help of a therapist who specializes in grief. I had an um, eating disorder while I was growing up. I was bulimic from age 10 to age 20. So when I was 14, I, I got put into therapy for it. And so the reason I tell you that is because I've been in some sort of therapy most of my life. I did a pediatric, I was a pediatric emergency nurse. And um, you don't get through that without some mental health help. Back when I was 14, however, it was really um, looked down upon to to go to therapy or like something was wrong with you. It wasn't like it is today, like where we are so much more open and we talk about our mental health. And I'm super open about um, my mental health needs. And I knew that, I always knew that if my dad passed away, I would definitely, that would be a very big crisis for me. And like especially uh, could lead to 
a relapse in my eating disorder. So that was what I was most afraid of. So I got connected with a grief therapist right away who was just amazing. Um, I definitely leaned into journaling and writing. I've always been some sort of writer, but um, I really, I filled journals with lots of writing, some prompt, prompted writing, some not prompted writing, and I found that pen to paper was the best. I really used movement. Um, that goes without saying for me. Another thing I did too is I had to set some boundaries with some people, you know, extended family that I had, um, just honestly for my own safety, to be honest. Um, and I would say that there's no right or wrong way with coping with grief. For coping with grief, I would say there's no stages, there's no neat little outline, because I would have really liked to have a neat little outline. A five-step process would have been awesome, and a duration for those five steps would also have been awesome. I um, highly recommend therapy, though. Um, I also did a ton of reading. I, I read everything from Steve Magnus's Do Hard Things to All Creatures Big and Small, and I found I really leaned into reading just because it helped me understand, helped me kind of escape sometimes, and it just got me into a better headspace for some reason. A lot of people sent me books. Um, oh, it was the first book I was sent was A Year of Magical Thinking. Highly recommend that. Um, I've ton, read a ton over the past year, probably more than ever in my life, but that really helped me also. Um, did a lot of traveling, and if you follow me on social media, you know that we made this big, um, huge uh, blow-up picture of my dad, my dad's head, um, and we called it Flat Dad. So everywhere we went this year, we went to Disney, we went to Texas, we went everywhere. We, we took him, and there's pictures of him with us all over the place, and I know that sounds awkward and weird, but that honestly was a huge help to uh, me at least, and I think to my family as well. So thanks so much for those questions. Questions are always super fun to answer, so feel free to send them. Um, the next thing I wanted to talk about are some books, two books that I'm reading. And as I think about it now, I think earlier I called the book All Creatures Big and Small, while it should be All Creatures Great and Small. Sorry about that. But there's two books I'm currently reading, and one of them is called The Genius of Athletes. This is a book by Noel Brick and Scott Douglas, and it really outlines a lot of actionable mental skills that you can use not only just in sport, but in my opinion, in life. One of the exercises that they talk about, or activities, whatever you want to call it, is called the if-then activity. And I like to do this one, especially as I'm coming upon a race, which I have my race season starts in April. So every time I come upon a race a few weeks before, I go through this exercise. And I think about all of the things that could not go wrong, but could become challenges in a race. And this would be something like I have a flat tire, I drop my nutrition, I drop my timing chip, I get a drafting penalty, even though we all try not to get those, anything. I lose my goggles in the swim. And for every scenario that I come up with, I come up with a plan of action. So going to the example of if I get a flat tire, I, I ride with a flat kit, I ride tubular tires, I know how to change them, um, I know how to summon help should I need it. So I have a plan for that and I know how to change it and I kind of go through my little checklist. 
let's say I drop my nutrition, you know, I kind of identify the things that I can do to get myself out of that situation. Um, Olympic swimmer Michael Phelps, his coach was very infamous for helping him. I don't know if it was intentional for him um, to develop, you know, uh, skills to get through difficult situations. One of the stories that's often told is how he, he, Michael Phelps apparently was on the block at a meet and he grabbed, Bob Bauman grabbed his goggles and broke them. So he had to kind of come up with a quick fix. And by cycling through exercises like that, Michael Phelps was able to win that 200 fly in the 2008 Beijing Olympics. His goggles were completely filled with water. But he was so used to troubleshooting um, that he had a plan for that. So I really like that exercise, the if-then. And you really can think about how that can apply to the rest of your life. Let's say you're giving a presentation in a business meeting. Start to think about what are the things that could pop up as challenges. Maybe even reframe it from being, oh, what could go wrong? But what could be a challenge? Your PowerPoint doesn't open. Well, if that happens, what's your backup? You have one on a flash drive or on a, you know, save to your email or something like that. Um, So I really think that those are applicable things, not just for athletes, but throughout life. And as we talked about earlier with my dad preparing my sister and I through sport for life, you can see how sport becomes such a playground for things that we can do in our lives. So maybe think about the next time you have something challenging coming up, a race or a presentation or maybe an interview. See if you can employ the if-then strategy and just see how it can help you. What's the worst thing that could happen, right? The second book I'm reading is called The Comfort, Comfort Crisis. Embrace Discomfort to Reclaim Your Wild, Happy, Healthy Self. This is a book by Michael Easter, and I like it because, not because it tells teaches us how to get uncomfortable. A lot of us know how to get uncomfortable. But in this book, um, the author outlines what is called a misogy, and I hopefully pronounced that right. A misogy and I'm going to quote an article that I found on medium.com that I thought was a really good explanation. It's a purifying ritual that the Japanese invented. It generally involves making the pilgrimage to an icy waterfall. Standing underneath the cold water uh, symbolizes intense purification. The Western way of looking at a misogy is best described by Jesse Itzler, who's another good author, by the way. The notion around the misogy is... You do something hard one time of year, one time a year that has an impact on the other 364 days of the year. Take on challenges that radically expand your sense of what's possible. There are just two rules. You have to have a 50% chance of success at best, and it doesn't kill you. It's a physical trial that you don't practice or prepare for, you don't perform before a crowd, and you don't bring and you don't brag or pay to enter. So I really think that that is a, a fun concept and a fun ritual, whatever you know version of it you aspire to ascribe to, or I probably should say subscribe to. For me, my whole race season this year is kind of my form of a misogy. I know that they say that the rules around this ritual is that it can't be something structured, you know, in the in the book. The author details how he's going backpacking through the wilderness of Alaska. And while I would love to do that, 
Not all of us have the capital to fund a trip like that, the time off of work to do that. And I'm a parent, so I have to act somewhat responsibly. And while they say in the book that a triathlon or an Ironman isn't, you know, doesn't count, I always take rules as suggestions. I think that in this life, we get really hung up on these hard, fast rules, whether it be how you eat, how you train, you know, yes, rules are important and guidelines are important in most situations. But I think in a situation like this, you can really design your own adventure. Triathlons, regardless of what your experience is, are difficult and you can really create a whole, a whole experience for yourself out there. I really like the concept of not making it public. I have to admit that I used to be someone on social media who posted every single workout I did until I learned that if you really want to inspire people, you don't stand in front of them, you stand behind them. But the reason for not being so, I guess I could say on open or loud about it on social media is because there are some really good studies that talk about how your brain reacts when you make a goal public. Now, there's some really good reasons to make a goal public. Accountability, people just like to share. While I might not share, I actually love when other people share because I love to cheer you on. But for me, making that goal and that journey a little bit more internal has, even just preparing for my season, has been awesome. Um, I, I can't even describe it, but I can't wait to tell you about it once I get rolling. Um, so I think that we can take the concept of a misogy in any way we want to and apply it to ourselves. It's fun to give it a title and a meaning and something and things like that. So, but the book does a really good job. I really like the adventure that this guy is on, this author is on. And while I'm still in the middle of it, um, and I probably can't go on an adventure like this, I don't really aspire to be in the Alaskan outback, (laughs) Um, I think that we can all use these examples as things, you know, inspiration for things that we could do for ourselves to challenge ourselves and to get out of our comfort zone. I think that doing that is really an evolution that never stops. But one thing I want to mention, going back to how your brain reacts to when you make goals public, there's some really interesting studies, as, as I mentioned, where sometimes if you're so public about your goal, your brain actually starts to believe that you've already achieved it. Um, you know, you, that may have happened to you. Maybe you've been like, you've come up to this race and every day you post everything and then race day you feel flat. Not saying that that's, you know, what happened, but it's something to consider. And again, on the flip side of that, sometimes people just love to share their goals. I love when you share your goals and your journeys because, again, I like to cheer you on. But again, those are two books that I am currently working through. I have about four books in the rotation. I'm not someone who reads one book front to back and then moves on to the next. I always have a couple going. Since my dad died, I've really honed in on my reading and writing practice, and it's really been a savior for me. And with that, we'll wrap up another episode. This is the Surrounded by Valor podcast. Thanks for listening. 